Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. time of day everyone yes i'm using his catchphrase now welcome to episode 121 of americans watching the footy the round 19 recap benjamin castle here alongside my brother ethan in south san francisco california by the time this episode is up ethan will either be in the air or having well started his southeast spooktacular yes i am ethan castle this is our last episode for our next three or you know if there's a bonus could be four if there's like some crazy list shit or something. But basically, over those next few episodes, I'm gonna be on the road. In which cities will we be for the next few? A lot of different ones. I think I'll be recording the next one from Durham, North Carolina, the one after that from Alpharetta, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta, and the one after that, I think also Alpharetta, yeah. But yeah, I know you'll be traveling a lot, so I'll be all over the land of NASCAR and Family Valley. Is it family values enough to have a mission barbecue there? Uh, I, I mean, there are enough local barbecue places. I don't know if they have mission barbecue. I'll find out. I have a feeling Australians don't know about the place. It is very family values and very America to the point that they play the Star Spangled Banner every day at noon. They really, really, really love the troops. Like, a lot. Anyway, round 19. Oh, and that's what we're here for. Before that, though, just some... Footy news that may strike a chord with Americans and international audiences a bit more. A bit before we started recording, the AFL announced three regional tournaments for 2024. The Asia Cup, the Pacific Cup, and the Transatlantic Cup, the last of which will be here in North America, probably either in the U.S. or Canada. So I, I know that a lot of people around here are awaiting news on that. If it's somewhere on the West Coast, I imagine we'll be there. Maybe even if it's in Florida where they have the cricket stadium, we'll be there for that. I would love to be able to incorporate that into like a baseball trip or something. Do both at once. That would be pretty sweet. Would be great also if we could manage to record alongside some people there. Yeah, do some live shows. Yeah, maybe meet people like Barish over there. We're calling you out. Already calling people out. Look, I bet Barish will be there. But you know why I think a lot of other countries would like Australian rules football if they got to know more about it. I'm thinking, like, England in particular, you could play Australian rules football in the rain. I mean, they'd still be whiny little bitches because that's just their culture. I am very glad that the ashes were retained by Australia, and I find it funny as to how it came about. But I did see a tweet congratulating England for leading the moral ashes 3-1, to one, so they should be congratulated for that. Why again did Stokes declare in the very first test? It was the right thing to do. They play the game the right way. So round 19, yeah, that's what we're here to talk about. Round 19 was the crazy round last year. I'm not sure if this was as crazy, but it got close. Maybe the craziest round yet this season? 
Had the last game gone a different way, it really had as it had for the first three quarters, it definitely would have been the craziest round of the year. I'm actually going to call this round the road trip round. So you might not know this because you might not be in a country with a good national highway system, but you know, road trips, at least the way I do them, I don't just take the fastest way to get somewhere. It's like, you know, you go, you find like an entertaining way to get from point A to point B. You know where you're going to end up, but you're going to take an interesting route to get there. Pass through as many counties as possible. In my case, yes. But this round kind of embody that because we got where we thought we'd be. I mean, we both got eight out of nine tips, correct? Yeah, the only one I missed was Port Adelaide Collingwood, which was the one I was least certain about anyway. Only one I missed was Frio Sydney. I believed in the power of 15th. But yeah, mostly predictable results, weird ways to get there. Did you expect the Bulldogs to walk over Essendon? No, I thought they'd win. I had a winning by 14. Yeah, that's where we started things on Friday night at Marvel Stadium because, well, that's where they always play. Essendon 7-7-49, defeated by the Bulldogs 13-12-90. I liked that Essendon brought Nick Cox back into the game, his first game on the season. Didn't really end up mattering, though. Um, Essendon were up 11 at quarter time. They dominated clearances in the first quarter, and then the Bulldogs remembered, like, wait a minute, we're really good at clearances, and then they just kind of crushed them from there. How does Marcus Bottapelli get better and better, it seems, every week and maybe every quarter? You know, I try as much as possible not to just go on about how great the star players are because you can kind of get that content anywhere. That's why we don't talk much about Nick Dacos. But Marcus Baldwin-Pelly was the best player in this game. He was unbelievable. Uh, two goals, two behinds, 29 disposals, 11 marks, 647 meters, and a couple of absolutely ridiculous plays. He took a really tough intercept mark to end the third quarter that Luke Beveridge talked about a bunch post-game, how it just kind of like embodied his spirit was probably not necessary to take because Essendon probably didn't have time to get downfield, but he still did it and sacrificed his body. But he also had a goal earlier in the third where he started the sequence by handballing out of his own 50, runs all the way downfield, ends up with the ball after a big Ed Richards run, and then fakes out Dyson Happel and kicks with his left. That was that was amazing. Yeah, that brought it out to 15 points. At what point did you sense that the game was over? You didn't really have the feeling that it was really done until early in the middle of the fourth, but the way the second quarter turned was very telling. It was like, ooh, if if the dogs are going to win clearances like this, that's that's just going to do it. And that's exactly what happened. And Essendon weren't as strong as they sometimes are on the wing. Sam Durham was quieter. Archie Perkins didn't get nearly as much of the ball. Yeah, rough couple of weeks for those two. It's almost like they're lagging behind by a week, you know, they played on the ground without a wing the previous week, and maybe Cardinia Park was still freaking them the fuck out. Tom Libertori was also a monster in this game. Just his typical, you know, a behind 36 disposals, 22 contested possessions, 12 clearances. But the other thing that I really want to talk about regarding the Bulldogs, we've talked about how they've kind of had this weird crowd of talls that hasn't been able to kind of figure its hierarchy out at times. And my prediction was incorrect. One of... Eugle Hagen, Waitman, and Naughton didn't really take over, but they combined for seven goals, and Naughton didn't have his best night kicking-wise. He did help set up a goal like a minute after getting hit in the dick. That was really impressive. Was that that handball sequence that ended with Baker's goal? I think it was, but what was it exactly? I gotta scroll through the tweets here and figure out exactly what it was that he did. Aha. Yeah, he was involved in the handball sequence, like a minute after he was doubled over from obviously getting hit in the balls. 
And then he also got the crumb that led to Cody Waitman's goal. That was the first of the fourth quarter. But I went back and watched because I was working during the second half. I saw that. That brought it out to 19. It was after that Waitman goal that I realized, oh, this is over. And four goals to one of the last. Essendon managing just two goals past halftime. I don't get what's happened to him. Well, you know what's funny? Jake Stringer only had eight touches, but I thought he was one of the more noticeable players. I hate to say this because it's kind of low-hanging fruit, but Dyson Happel, I know he's been the target of a lot of criticism over the last few years. He was really overmatched against Baldinpelli, which, I mean, most people are, but it was it was very evident in this case. Yeah, that was not the right matchup for him when Baldinpelli was going forward. That's just difficulties there with Ezidin not having a super great defensive unit and needing Ridley and Laverty to still be available to intercept, which they did. Ridley with 14 marks and 9 intercepts from a 29 disposal day. Laverty with 27 and 15 marks. I mean, realistically, who who would you have tried to put on Bonapelli? Would I mean, would you have had Darcy Parrish follow in? Or, or just like keep him on him as much as possible, especially in the middle? I don't know. Realistically, most teams don't have a matchup for Bonapelli. But Apple was far too slow for it. Managed 22 disposals and 9 marks, but most of those were when he didn't have to deal with Bont. And he's played much better as a whole since struggling early on in the season. We were talking about maybe needing to omit him. This was not the right sort of game for him to thrive in, though. Here's the thing that I really took away from this game about the Bulldogs. Like I said, we've talked about this weird forward crowd. Like I said, there's really no hierarchy established, which can be either good or bad. You know, if you're distributing to a number of different targets, then it makes can make some matchups not as clear. You know what, though? They've got a couple of clear smaller players that are doing it every week, specifically up front, Caleb Daniel, and in the back, Ed Richards. Uh, you see, I don't think of him as being super small. I mean, he's definitely not a tall. I think he's 6'2". Something like that. Either way, he's small enough that he's become such an important piece week in and week out, and that reliability has been a really important part of what this team has done. This was Richards' 100th game. And so he was a bit more of a focus because of that. I think it was the goal right before uh, Dalton got hitting the balls that Richards had a big run out of defense to help set up that highlight bottom Pelly goal. I also think, you know, for a team that struggled to get depth contributions, one guy who's been able to provide that pretty regularly has been Anthony Scott. Just feels like he's a right place, right time guy. I like Boo Boo Thomas in there. He didn't do anything to blow you away, but he looked like he belonged. The biggest weakness, I thought, Josh Bruce was such an obvious liability. It's like, here's a guy who, I've said this before, less than two years ago, he had a 10-goal game against North, but still, still a 10-goal game. Since then, he's had, was it ACL surgery? Yeah. And then you take him out of the position he's good at and put him in a position that's going to test his mobility when he's had surgery that's going to impede said mobility. And... In the first quarter, he got targeted a bunch and got exposed. And I don't I, I don't get why they put him there in the first place. It's a question we've had for a while. At 31 years old, he's going near the end of his career, and I wonder if this move to defense may have accelerated the end for him. You know which taller defender was actually pretty good, though? Former cricketer Alex Keith with another one of his better games. The past month or so, we've been calling on Keith to have a few better games in a row. Here's a 31-year-old defender who's in the right spot. I mean, he also, because of his cricket career, doesn't have as much wear and tear on him as your typical 31-year-old. Yeah, this was only his 100th game as well in his seventh season. The first three of those 
with Adelaide. Doesn't ever get a huge amount of marks, but tends to be one of the smarter players for them in moving out of defense, along with Richards on a bit of the smaller side. He matched up well in this game, though. I I liked what I saw out of him. You know, for Essendon's defense, I actually thought, for what it's worth, Brandon Zirk Thatcher did an all right job. Uh, Jaden Laverde and Jordan Ridley were both having good games, and then Ridley suffered what's been revealed as a high-grade quad string that's going to keep him out at least a month, could be for the rest of the home-and-away season. And for a club that's already slipped out of the eight for the moment, that is not ideal to have one of your most important interceptors out. All of a sudden, they're down in 11th. Yes, it's extremely close. They're just a game out, but they're also below 100%. That said, they've got West Coast and North in the next couple of weeks. This is a stretch where they're playing four straight games at Marvel, including this Saturday. God, I hate that this game is going up against Showdown because it's a huge matchup. Essendon hosting the Swans, which I think you could call that bloody pretty much an elimination game. I think more so for the Swans, but for Essendon to a lesser extent. I believe that's going to be your game, Ben. Yeah, I know you have Showdown this week. It's going to be... I've been adamant to to cover the reverse Showdown. God, that's going to be both those games going on at once. You need two screens for sure. Anyway, Bulldogs have done a nice job securing themselves into the eight for now. I really don't want Essendon to make the eight. Not that I don't like them, but because I don't think they could... They are one of the best eight teams. And all that, that win over the Crows a few weeks ago was like, all right, we got something here. These guys have proved they belong, and since then, they haven't really competed. The past two weeks, they've also had one of those two most important interceptors leave the game midway, and that's impacted their ability to, to stay in things, although they were probably, they were already out of it at Cardinia Park, obviously. Other statistical highlights that we didn't get to for the Dogs, uh, Caleb Daniel, 28 disposals. Bailey Smith, nice game in his return from illness, a behind in 25 disposals. Adam Trelore, a goal, 25 disposals, 14 contested possessions. Tim English, 33 hitouts and 18 disposals. Biggest stats that really dictated this game. So the Bombers actually won hitouts by 16, despite not having Sam Draper. That was, that caught me off guard. Better showing in the ruck out of Nick Bryan, Ben. Yeah, I... At this point, I think if you have everyone healthy, I would play Draper and Brian and tell Andrew Phillips, sorry, right now, not our best option. Draper and Brian are also more useful outside of those contests, which is the other thing. Nonetheless, Essendon did not do the same in clearances. The Dogs beat them 47-26 on clearances, including 35-17 from stoppage. Zach Merritt not as strong in that respect. Darcy Parrish got nine of his own clearances in a 24 disposal game. Merritt was a bit better in the forward half in the second half, but the game had already turned against the Bombers by then. I think of Merritt's best area as like the edge of the center square close to the forward 50. It's kind of Jack Viney-esque. I guess so. Uh, the other biggest staff, so the Bombers were actually at almost 81% disposal efficiency for the game, and then inside 50, they were under 31%, whereas the Bulldogs are at 53% inside 50. Better team won this game. Can't say that about every game this round. Talked about Ridley and Liberty's games already, as well as Merrick's. Mason Redmond with 28 disposals, 9 marks, and 547 meters gained. Andrew McGrath with 26 disposals and 10 marks. Since he's moved to halfback, which was really done last year, he's shown to be one of their most valuable pieces. Jake Kelly with 21 disposals and 16 marks. 
Brandon Zerk Thatcher with 17 disposals and 10 marks. I think having Nick Cox in there did good things for their defensive structure. It's a matter now of keeping Cox in there, making sure he really gets back up to speed at the AFL level after he hasn't been there for over a year. Richmond 14-12-96, defeating Hawthorne 15-5-95. Fuck. You know, I tweeted at one point, like, yes, I'm a Cass fan, but I love the way this Hawthorne team plays, and I think that their future is really bright. And you also said that you appreciate the help today, and then they didn't help. Everything else I said about them remains the same. Like, I still love the direction they're headed in. Sam Mitchell knows how to move pieces around, both between games and in-game. This was just a very clear case of the difference in experience and one team knowing how to finish a game and how to win games that the other, between lacking that experience and stuff, just, what have we seen the Hawks finish a game this year other than, other than really against, like, St. Kilda? I mean, I guess Brisbane, they put that one away kind of mid-fourth, though, but close games this is something they've got to develop still. Credit to Dion Prestia. Prestia led Richmond with 28 disposals, had seven tackles, one behind, but Andrew McQualter mentioned that the previous week, he got the playing group together and helped talk them through end-of-game scenarios, you know, how to be able to lock things down late or how to move forward and get the ball to the right places late to get that winning goal. So uh, that happened. Prestia drove that off the field, and you can say he drove it on field as well. Liam Baker with a couple key goals, including the winner with just over a minute left. I would not have guessed Baker to be the guy to kick the winner. I just think if it was still playing more defense, but he's one of the best versatile smalls in the league, and it's better for him and Richard when he's able to play more freely. Baker was big down the stretch. It was a 33-2 fourth quarter, and frankly, you could argue that it didn't need to come down to the last couple of minutes because during the midsection of the fourth quarter, Richmond had a bunch of chances that they didn't convert on. Richmond read Jack Revolt. It wasn't just him. Yeah, he had a couple key ones, though. Ryan Mansell, who had a bit of a difficult game. But there were a couple of obvious signs where the Hawks were wearing down. Uh, Ned Reeves, unfortunately, was completely gassed for the fourth quarter. Just, like, couldn't get after a ground ball at all. I wonder how much the omission of Lloyd Meek impacted things there. They've still got to figure out, you know, do you need to play both of them? Do you just play one? And I think if you just play one generally, Meek is the better of those two. I think Reeves has value as a tall center half forward, kind of in a Luke Jackson sense, although he doesn't quite have as big of a body for it. Yeah. I mean, he's he's taller, obviously. No, I think I think Reeves is a player that they need to figure out how to properly manage within the best 22, because he belongs there. But I think, he, I think then the best 22's got to involve both him and me. I think it does. Yeah, well, unfortunately, Reeves will not be taking part next week at this stage because he was suspended for a dangerous tackle on Yvonne Soldo in the first quarter after Hawthorne had gotten out to a four goals to one advantage. You had Shea Bolton setting up a Cam McIntosh goal to cut it to five with 2.01 left. There was a goalless stretch for Richmond of about nine minutes of clock time before that, and you thought, ooh, Hawthorne might have done enough here to put this away. It still felt like, all right, next goal wins, and then... That McIntosh goal is like, even with 201 left, it's like, ah, shit, it's going to happen. There was some hope, like, all right, it's too late, but you had a feeling. And then what was really frustrating was the miscommunication between Connor Nash and Will Day, where Day decided to 
punch a ball out of a contest instead of market because it was kind of a it was dusty kind of kicked into a 1v2 and i thought initially it was poor instincts by nash one of the hawthorne fans on twitter i believe it was liam no last name given not sure if that's any relation to Brandine, no last name given but he said that Connor Nash needed to tell Day, like, you've got space, mark this, and he didn't, and he punched it right to Liam Baker. Day had been one of the most important players in this game, especially in the fourth quarter. They moved him back into defense, kind of having him as that extra defender back there, had stabilized things somewhat during that goalless stretch, and I thought, really, the story would have been that move helping the Hawks hold on. Instead, it ended up being his mistake, Baker's goal, and also a brilliant substitution for Richmond. So Hawthorne first subbed out Denver Granger Barafs, who had had a Tony Snell-like game. Yeah, I, I had meant to mention that. Uh, zero disposals. That was near the start of the third quarter. The Hawks still led by over five goals at that point. But after our club's traded goals, Tyler Young was taken out just because Granger Barafs wasn't there. They weren't in as much need for talls. And on came debutante Matthew Coltard, Midseason draft pickup from Glenelg in the Sandful, and he helped change the game as well. Coltard with seven disposals, three score involvements, a couple inside 50s, an assist, also two bounces, so he will never be on AFL Central's no-bounce team. He really solidified things on the wing, a really aggressive kick, used his speed well also to get himself the space to make those smart kicks. What a brilliant substitution. He's in that spot now, you know, does he stay in that role, or is he going to be in the 22? I think I think he could have played his way into the 22 there. Uh, I wonder if that may squeeze out Sam Banks. I think Mansell is also at risk. One of those two, Banks or Mansell, probably, on the, barring any injuries. On the smaller side, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering that if it is Mansell, but really Jack Ross and Coltart have made their case to be on the wings for the next bit. Ross, we've seen it over a few games, but it was... Coltard, just this electric small wing. He had this huge two-bounce run, then hit Trent Cotchin. Cotchin went deeper to Jack Revolt, and that was how Richmond got their first goal in the fourth quarter. Coltard then ran on to a kick that Jack Revolt just missed. He overcooked it for Jack Graham. That's when he got his assist, setting up to Dusty. That brought it back to 15. And then at the end of the game as well, Coltard was the one who was able to get the ball out of the pack, and allow Richmond to control the final seconds uncontested. Other individual player observations in this game, I am convinced that nobody will ever break the intercept mark record. It is a conspiracy to keep it at 10, and that Darcy Moore thing, that was clearly an inside job, because we keep seeing guys get to exactly 10, including James Sicily, who had a monster first quarter, really good first half in general, should we get a good first half? Uh, Chad Wingard, insane first quarter, decent second quarter, non-existent second half. Non-existent second half outside the first minute because he got that first goal of the second half. Uh, James Warple was a clearance monster in the first half, and Hawthorne used their speed really well. Both teams, when they played fast, looked really good. You, know, It's funny because I don't think this is a very good-looking game in terms of, like, jumper clashes, just, like, the two different shades of yellow and gold and stuff and the brown versus black is not the prettiest game, but the on-field quality. This was really entertaining football. And Hawthorne largely were faster, but Shea Bolton was able to keep up. He had a couple of huge runs and 
sequences where, you know, he would go from midfield into the forward or defensive 50 that were just ridiculous. And I don't think his performance this year has been appreciated enough. I think in past years, we saw him as this guy, you know, when we talked about him was after like a five goal game or something or a five behind game. Now we're seeing him do this in the midfield, which I mean, he's really the complete package with the best guys other than him for Richmond, uh, Jack Graham. Ben Miller was really good. I know a few weeks ago you weren't so high on him. I think he he was really solid in this game. Was he my sleeper? Yeah, I think he was. Jack Ross was decent. And then uh, Tim Taranto, who had my favorite moment of this entire game by far, and maybe, maybe the most underappreciated moment of the entire round. He kicked a goal early in the third from just beyond 50. And the camera focuses on him. And you can see him say, holy fuck. He ended up with three goals, which is not anything typical for him. 23 disposals and eight tackles. I mean, the disposal number is low for him by comparison, but this was just his second three-goal game this season. He had that four-goal game in the lost port back in round 11. But Bolton's the one that we've tended to focus on it with good reason. His speed is obviously game-changing wherever he plays, and lately it's been more kind of between the center line, and the forward 50. He was impactful in getting the ball out to Cam McIntosh for that sort of inevitability goal, and that's just one highlight. And on a team where today they were outrun, Bolton was one of the few who was able to keep up and probably had their best rebound work as a result. I think it's very, very possible that the Hawks go out next week and sweep the Saints. We'll talk more about the Saints later. But like this Hawthorne team, they're at 5-13. and 13. They could easily have a couple more wins. They've clearly separated themselves from the bottom couple. I think like they're very clearly the number 16 team in the competition, but a damn good 16. And one that I think within two, three years, this could be a finals team. And within five to six, maybe even win another flag. You're even more assistant than I am that Sam Mitchell will win a flag as a coach. They just... All I need from them is to show that they know how to close out a close game because they haven't had that yet. And some of that's just Talon winning out and, you know, stamina or lack thereof, like seeing Ned Reeves fade in the fourth quarter, for example. But I still really like where they're headed. And I thought their game plan for this game was once again really solid. It was just let's play really fast. Let's handball through the corridor and let's just play against Richmond's weaknesses. And they did a good job of that before the end of the last game. Richmond were a ninth. I was hoping that the last game would have gone a different way to keep them there because they would have been in ninth with nine wins at 99.9%, and it would have been just peak ninthman. Yeah, they're now in... They're now in 10th, and I'm I'm not sure... Excuse me. And I can see two more wins for them at least, with St. Kilda round 22 and North round 23. Actually, I want to say they'll beat St. Kilda, but that isn't Marvel. I just don't know what you're going to get out of this Richmond team week to week now, which is pretty fun, but it also makes it really tough to predict what the hell they're going to do the rest of the way. There's at the bottom of that pack, I think, that that needs three wins instead of four to make finals. I don't know where the third one's going to be, though. I think they have a chance to get it in pretty much every game, although this coming week they host a Demons team, or well, host technically, but they have a game against a Demons team that they have not fared well against the last few times out. Then the Bulldogs, who the hell knows what that's going to look like. I just, this is probably the hardest team to figure out. Jack Ross finished this game with 27 disposals and 7 marks. Dustin Martin, 2 goals, 24 disposals, 7 marks. 
I don't know how much of it's been him and how much of it's been coaching, but getting him into this role where he's a forward, but also getting high disposal numbers is pretty impressive. Nathan Broad, 21 disposals and 12 marks. Jack Graham, a goal behind, 21 disposals, 10 score involvements, 8 tackles, really liked him. Liam Baker, those two goals behind and 20 disposals. Daniel Rioli, 20 disposals and 11 intercepts, which, you know, in a fast-paced game, him getting an intercept sets you off on a counterattack. Pretty nice to have. Nick Blostone, 20 disposals, 9 marks. Noah Balta, 19 disposals, 14 marks, 588 meters. Cam McIntosh, who's had a much better second half of the season than he had first half, a goal, 15 disposals, and 8 marks. And Yvonne Soldo, a goal off 33 hitouts and 12 disposals. Tigers, the much more efficient team inside 50, running at nearly 57% disposal efficiency to 38 for Hawthorne. That could explain some of their success late in the game, as well as being plus 12 in marks inside 50 and plus 10 in contested marks. And 26 scores to Hawthorne's 20. Fair enough. Richmond also plus 21 in tackles. Just 52 tackles for Hawthorne is surprising. That's a bit of a letdown. John Newcomb led Hawthorne with 30 disposals and scored a goal. Another pretty complete game from him. James Sicily with 28 disposals, 15 intercepts, 13 marks, and a record-tying 10 intercept marks. I don't think he should have gotten to 10, though, because there was one of those where he should have given up a free to Jack Revolt. I think that was the ninth of them. Carl Amon with 27 and 7 marks, gaining 720 meters. He's been their most effective ground gainers of late. James Warple, a goal from 27 and 9 clearances. Will Day with 18 disposals and 496 meters. Chad Wingard kicked 3-1 from 17, but after getting that first goal in the second half, fell off the face of the earth for pretty much the rest of the game. Mitch Lewis, 4-2 from 14 disposals and 7 marks. It's frustrating when you get that kind of performance from your two most important goal scorers and can't close it out, and when you take efficiently as well. Charlie Curnow, 10-363, defeated by West Coast, 10-969. Dom Sheed with the goal after the siren. Honestly, I thought he had marked after the siren. Carlton 21-14-140, by the way. I'd be more embarrassed by giving up the one goal to Ed Curnow than to give up 10 to Charlie. I knew it would be bad. McGovern out certainly didn't help. It was Brady Hoff was not the right matchup for Kerno, obviously. That's just not the right game for him to play. Matchup up against a small like Charlie Cameron, yes, but going up against a tall is not right for someone of his build. He needed to be getting out more. Really, there was no other option, though, with the list they had other than swinging back Oscar Allen, and that's why his goal streak ended. Nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world. I would have sold out to make that, to get Allen a goal and get the streak to continue. I was screaming for it. Yeah, I mean, it's the one good thing this team has had. The outcome was settled long ago. You, you should have done what you needed to to get him that goal. I think it would have been fun. Before Allen went back to Cardell, he'd already kicked four goals. And he didn't get the matchup the entire time as well. Really, you knew that it was going to be a bloodbath. There's not really much else to say here. Actually, there is a lot to say in terms of how Pyrrhic this victory could end up being for the Blues. Jack Silvani subbed out with a jarred knee. Sam Walsh did his hamstring and was subbed out in the middle of the second quarter, bringing an end to his 63-game streak of 20-plus disposals and obviously putting him at risk for some really important contests in the next few. They've got Collingwood coming up Friday night. 
Jesse Motlop was out with a calf injury near the middle of the fourth quarter, so that brought the Blues down to two rotations in a tighter game that would have mattered a hell of a lot more, but it's going to require some tinkering of the play group these next couple weeks. That's the biggest concern out of this game for Carlton. After Collingwood, they've got St. Kilda round 21, then Melbourne at the Gold Coast and GW West to end the season. I really think that GW West game could be the last game on the calendar for the season Sunday afternoon. I watched hardly any of this game. I was trying to balance watching this with Richmond and Hawthorne simply to keep a tab on the Eagles. I ended up needing to go back a bit and get the final details on this game later. Basically, at one point, I saw on the bottom, you know, in the bottom of the screen on my game that it was 8 nothing, and then, like, immediately it flipped from 8 to 26. And it ended up getting out to 59-2 to at quarter time. That That's really it. Uh, they could have easily had 100 by halftime and stopped on 98. I'm surprised that they only kicked 42 in the second half. Their um, percentage is nowhere near an issue, so it's not like they have to really scrap for that. It's just they got to keep piling up wins, although I wish those injuries hadn't happened just because it would have made the game this coming week way more intriguing. I mean, it's still intriguing. You know, Carlton Collingwood, it's hard to not get excited. At the same time, Collingwood should take care of things. Yeah. I'm mostly interested in seeing what the crowd's going to be like for Friday. My guess is in the about 80,000 range. Sounds about right. Could rain early in the day Friday, but looks like Friday evening should be fine. A chance of showers a little bit before the game, but should be in the low to mid 50s Fahrenheit, so 12, 13 degrees Celsius going toward the bounce. George Hewitt with a game-high 31 disposals. He kicked the goal. He had 10 clearances and 10 score involvements. Sam Doherty, 9 clearances, was not expecting that. The 29 disposals... Nine score involvements, eight tackles, seven marks, 555 meters aren't so surprising. I think because of Allen having to play back and the Blues playing so much of this game forward, Doherty was allowed to be further downfield and that allowed him to get those clearances. Nick Newman, hello. A goal, 23 disposals, eight marks. I've been proven very right about him. The aforementioned Charlie Curnow, not only the 10 goals and three behinds, but 20 disposals. 13 contested possessions, 8 marks, 478 meters. Tom DeCoding, 3 behinds, 25 hitouts, 19 disposals, 9 clearances. Brody Kemp, he and DeCoding have really been, I think, the most unexpected big contributors as of late. He had 19 disposals and 11 marks. Blues only ended up with 21 more inside 50s and one efficiency inside 50 by 15%. Feels like that could have been way more lopsided than it was. Uh, clearances, though. 57 to 25 and 39 to 15 for the stoppage. Normally, the Eagles' clearance numbers hadn't been that bad, right? No, but Luke Shuey getting another hamstring injury didn't help there. I thought that their movement from the midfield in the second half off stoppage was actually a bit better just because they weren't looking for Shuey to clear the entire time, but the damage had already been done. Not surprising Carlson laying 18 more tackles because even when the Eagles don't have the ball, their tackling numbers have been pretty poor. Uh, Eagles did record 21 more marks. I assume that was just kind of like kicking it around their own end and stuff. Looking for options there, yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention Jacob Wiedering. Speaking of marks, he had 16 disposals and 11 marks. Wiedering stood in as captain with Patrick Cripps out. Yeah, this was done without Cripps, without Chera, without Jack Barton, obviously Harry Mackay. And they still managed to get this done like that. 
I really think if you had a healthy 22, they would have put up 200. For the Eagles, Andrew Gaff was back at the 22. He had a goal from 30 disposals and 10 marks. Alex Witherden had 30 disposals, 12 intercepts, 7 marks, and gained 579 meters. Liam Duggan behind for 27 disposals and 8 marks. I insist that he's another player that would get a lot more respect if he played in Victoria. Shannon Hurd, 24 and 7 marks. Jaden Hunter behind from 23 and 7 marks. And Sam Petrevsky seen the two-game suspension for a dangerous tackle of Alex Chincata, which I will only mention because it was a more dangerous and harder sling than Jordan Boyd put on Darcy Byrne-Jones. But because Chincata wasn't concussed, it's only two games. How do you balance intent and impact is a question. You get the stuff out of the game by punishing the intent. Resign, Michael Christian. Brisbane Lions, 9-10-64, defeating Geelong, 7-11-53 at the Gabba. This was a far more difficult watch than I expected between the low scoring and also Geelong just not being themselves at all for the first two and a half quarters at least. The way they ended this game makes me think more positively about them going into a crucial home game against Frio. I think it was Rory Kilpatrick who tweeted that this reminded him of a 2020 Tuesday night game. And the only differences was that it was a full house. You know, they should have moved this game to the G so more people could have attended. And that we weren't like captivated by like, what the hell is going on? We, we have an understanding of what happened. But first goalless first quarter from the Cats since their last trip to the Gabba. Only one in the first half. It was 32-11 at halftime, and it could have been a lot worse. Uh, Brisbane couldn't kick straight. Got up by 21, and then Geelong made things interesting, getting it down to three goals. Had a chance to cut it to a 12-point margin with 12 and a half to go, but Ollie Henry, off of a gift turnover from Oscar McInerney, missed to the right. Jeremy Cameron did get a goal to cut it to 11 a minute later. Then Will Ashcroft tore his ACL, but on a night where the Caps wrapped up every hit out to disadvantage possible, Mark Litsovs did so in a key spot. Dane Zorko set up Kalachi, who kicked the goal to put the Lions up 17. That's really it. Achim was one of the biggest positives out of the game for me. Had been, wasn't ever sure about his place in the lineup. Had been in and out these past couple of years. But obviously, Ashcroft being out, which is so disappointing in itself, given the start to his career that he's had, does open up a spot in the midfield. I imagine that would go to someone like Devin Robertson or Kyle Lohman, but it could go more outside and taller and go for Achi. I think between his intercept, I think just his marking ability and his full field versatility necessitates him to be in, though, at this point. As much as we like Ryan Lester, I wonder if when push comes to shove, you'd be more willing to be without Lester than without Kalachi. Even if Ashcroft hadn't gotten hurt, he made a very good case to stay in the lineup long term. Finished this game with a goal of behind 23 disposals and 9 marks. Wasn't just in his own 50, was really involved everywhere. And I think his performance was really a testament to Brisbane's depth. It's like, this guy couldn't crack their lineup most weeks. That tells you how stacked this team is. This was only his fourth game of the season. And the first two of those were as a sub. My frustration within this game was that overall the Lions did not play that well and the Cats were just that shitty. If you had told me the Lions were going to play like that, I would have really liked our chances, but we suck. Uh, up until late in the third quarter, it was basically Tom Stewart and nothing else. They 
couldn't get the ball past midfield. The midfield was terrible. And then, you know, they had an inspired effort down the stretch, but it wasn't, it just wasn't up. I mean, I guess other than Stewart, Patrick Dangerfield had a pretty full game. Most of the forwards didn't have an opportunity to because the ball never came near them. I don't know how much of that is missing, you know, Gary Rowan as a spark plug. One thing I did not expect was for Joe Danaher and Oscar McInerney to absolutely crush Mark Blitzov and Reese Stanley in the walk. Technically in cat for plus 15 on hitouts, but minus 29 on clearances. Lines one clearance is 50 to 21 at 40 to 16 from stoppage, which is unbelievable because that's something the cats usually dominate. Like, I don't think hitouts to disadvantage is a stat that gets tracked, but Blitzovs and Staley could have easily combined to set the record for it. Hitouts to advantage this game, by the way, big O with 14, the cats combined for nine. I'm surprised it was that many. Cats only picked up two points out of a possible 20 from out-of-state away games, so we're not going to count the... Gather around. In that, also, remember, that was against West Coast. So it really hardly counts anyway. Yeah. Um, if I was giving the Brownlow votes for this game, I know Lockie Neal had a good game, but I think I'd give the three to Josh Dunkley, probably two to Tom Stewart, and then one to Hachi. Dunkley leading the way with 27 disposals, 16 contested possessions, eight tackles and seven clearances. Felt like he had way more than eight tackles. He was really good. To have Dudley and Neil be able to go at contest is almost too powerful. And against a Cats midfield that has been subpar, really could have used a guy like Mitch Nevitt to be able to compete more in there. Or Cam Guthrie. I mean, the difference is Cam's not healthy yet. Yeah, I, I still think Mitch Nevitt needs to be in there. I, I'm still not sure who you replaced, but it's it's frustrating. And you'll be able to work through the Mark O'Connor tag to get 25 disposals, 14 contested, 9 clearances, and 7 marks. Probably would garner him some votes, if not the maximum. Hugh McCluggage with 26 disposals. Connor McKenna, a goal from 23. His goal was an important one in the first half. I'm really happy that McKenna's come back, been so confident, played so well. Just because the last memory of him in Australia before this was him getting blasted by the media for contracting COVID. There was a time where, yes, apparently you were a bad person if you got sick. Darcy Wilmot behind from 23. Kadeen Coleman, 21 disposals with 7 marks. Joe Danaher kicked 2-1 from 21 disposals and 11 contested possessions. Had some of that second ruck time as well. Jasper Fletcher, a week after taking out the goal of the week, had a behind from 19 disposals and 8 marks. It's scary how good this Young Lions group is as well, and that they're keeping guys like Achi out of a lineup a lot of weeks. Even without Ashcroft, this young group is still going to be really good. Suck to see Ashcroft go down. So what had happened, he kind of got stuck under Max Holmes, and then Mark Blitzov ran into him. Totally accidental. And he was holding his knee. Broadcasting thought, oh, he was able to walk off the last bit. Well, like, yeah, ACL's lateral movement stuff. And then he iced his knee and... Thought it could be ACL, wasn't certain, and that it got confirmed on Sunday. And devastating that his first year has to end like this when he was looking forward to help the Lions be right there with that double, likely getting a double chance at this point, having a finals opportunity right away. It is nice to see just like how universally liked as a player he already clearly is. Well, I'm looking forward already to 2025 Will Ashcroft. And by that time, he'll also have his brother Levi in tow at the Lions. Yeah, there's another one that's already almost there. Congratulations to another one of those young guys, Kyle Lohman. 
on his sixth win in a row to begin his career. And you'll understand the importance of that when we talk about another game soon. So yeah, Tom Stewart really kept the Cats in the first half. 25 disposals, 13 intercepts, 9 marks. Uh, Jack Bowes played a much better second half. He had a behind 24 disposals, gained 514 meters. Mitch Duncan, early turnover issues, finished with 23 disposals and 9 marks. Mark Blitzovs, not good in ruck contests. He was still a good enough player everywhere else to be a net positive. He finished with 18 disposals, 10 hitouts, 7 marks, kicked behind. Patrick Dangerfield, he had two of the Cats' first three goals. They had one goal until less than five minutes left in the third quarter. The one goal came with a little under seven minutes left in the first half, and then Dangerfield scored again with 3.20 left in the third. A lot of this third quarter was baby-making footy, or in my case, play Wordle and other similar games. That is not usual for a Cats game at all. No, I was... It was boring. But Dangerfield, those two goals, 17 disposals, 10 contested possessions. Mark O'Connor, 15 disposals and eight marks, and Tanner Broom, who got his face taped up in every conceivable way, was... One of the more entertaining things about this game was watching the training staff try to patch him up and, like, tape up his nose, and I'm not sure what the solution was, but he ended up with eight tackles. He ended up looking like somebody taking a Joel Selwood cosplay way too far. Now, on the other hand, Dean Zorko had, like, the typical Selwood head wrap. He had a head clash with Dangerfield in the first quarter. Dangerfield got some stitches above his eye and got back in. Zorko got the, had a headband-type deal. All right, there were two games that started at exactly 2.40 a.m. our time. Usually the last couple games of the night are staggered by either 5 or 15 minutes. These were not, but there was one game that commanded far more attention than the other. And we're going to save that one until after the break. Because I think the best way to time this so that things kind of line up in terms of like interesting content and compelling games and just balance time-wise on both sides of the break, we're going to go with the game that hardly anyone watched first. So this was your game, Benjamin, the way we split things, the way it worked out. So uh, Fremantle 12-4-76, defeated by Sydney 16-9-105. My only observations from this game were I should have captain Luke Parker. Frio still just really struggled to defend anything. And 15th place finally lost for the first time in a while because it had been like eight weeks uh, 15th place had won eight straight games, and that's that's over now. Thanks, Swamp. I don't think that influenced my tip, honestly. I think it was more thinking that in the game where I thought it would have been more evenly matched, that Freo would take advantage of being at home. Instead, the real highlight of someone being at home was Buddy Franklin kicking three goals in his last game back home in Western Australia. It's only been a bit over 18 and a half years since he was drafted out of the Perth Demons of the Waffle. Whereas there was still a possibility, a slim one, but a possibility of him playing another game at the G. There is no possibility of him playing another game in Optus. This was definitely his final game there. There will be no finals in Perth this year. Well, it's unfortunate. Unless there's another Victoria COVID lockdown. Can never rule that out. Honestly, no, I think the one you can never rule out is a Western lockdown. That is true. I wonder if McGowan's successor will be as hardline on that as he is. My concerns for Frio for this game started, though, with some of the list selection. I think from there, that should have been a sign for me to switch my tip, and I would have gone 9 for 9. I was backing in Liam Reedy to make his debut as another rock option to be able to keep Luke Jackson in a more natural spot. Instead, Josh Corbett came in as a third tall, and that was not the right move. 
out of the three talls for Frio, early on it was Tracy who had the impact with the first goal. Jackson held his own in the ruck with 43 hitouts and 14 disposals. Did help, obviously, that neither of Tom Hickey and, or Peter Laddams played, that Hayden McLean was getting the assignment there, but Sydney were superior pretty much everywhere else. The better pressure team led by Luke Parker, who turned back the clock a bit with his 31 disposal, 9 stored involvement, 9 tackle, and 8 clearance game. Chad Warner coming back in did good things there. James Robottom's 8 tackles were nothing new for him. And from that pressure and clearance, the Swans possessed the ball far more, which was frustrating also if you're a Frio fan or just wanting Frio to compete in this game, which I'm the latter, I'm always much more a fan of competitive footy, and I have reason to like the Dockers even as an Eagles member. They were scoring somewhat efficiently from the few entries they had. They noted on the broadcast at one point they had scored 5-1 from 16 inside 50s, I believe, in the first half. So from that alone, you know, good sign if they're able to get more clearances, but nobody other than Caleb Sarong was able to do that for him. I think Sarong had like, what, nine of his clearances from center? In the first half, he had eight of Frio's 17 clearances, which was insane on its own. I, that does sound about right. He had 10 clearances total as he racked up 17 contested possessions and 32 disposals, but nobody else was able to support him there, not even Andrew Brayshaw, surprisingly enough. And whereas no one was there to support Sarong, the Swans were spreading the field whenever they had the ball, whether that was away from clearance or from a turnover. They scored 4-1 from turnovers in the first quarter, and we're getting from the defense to forward 50 extremely well from intercepts, and Frio just weren't able to take them on. I have an idea for how you could handle the team spreading the field more. Go on. If a team spreads the field against you, I think the best way to counter that is by having like good wing play, right? Yeah, unfortunately, Nathan O'Driscoll was hurt. Oh, okay. I thought he was just being omitted. If he's, if he's hurt, then I'll, I'll let it slide. Yeah, he was hurt, and Ethan Stanley, the sub, didn't come on until later. Stanley showed well in the minimal time he had, a few good deliveries, but I was thinking maybe the move should have been made sooner and have him and Michael Frederick operate on opposite wings to try and cut things off. Moving Neil Erasmus more outside could have been helpful there, too. Yeah, without O'Driscoll and Aish, you could understand why the Dockers had difficulty matching up on the wing and why the Swans were so apt on spreading out. Big staffs for the Swans other than Parker. Jake Lloyd on return with 23 disposals and 8 marks. Lloyd returned after clearing concussion protocols and with Lewis Melikin out. Errol Golden kicked 1-1 from 22 disposals. Braden Campbell with 20 disposals and 10 marks. And Callum Mills kicking two goals straight from 20 and 8 marks as well. He was playing more outside than had been typical for him especially in the last month or so. That was noted on the broadcast as well. The Swans were at nearly 58% disposal efficiency inside 50 to Frio's 34. Yikes. Even I didn't realize it was that bad. Maybe it was because of how much more the Swans were inside 50 to begin with. Brayshaw, a goal, 26 disposals, 9 score involvements. Jager O'Meara, 26 disposals and 8 tackles. You know what we call that? It, that's not an octopus. No, we call it 26 disposals and 8 tackles. Luke Ryan, 23 disposals, 8 intercepts, 8 marks, 487 meters gained. He is not the problem in their defense. And Lockie Schultz, or Schultz, as it's sometimes said. I wonder if they think there's an Ulad over, and so they try to say, like, Schultz or something? I don't know. I think they think there's a schwa. 
but uh, four goals, seven tackles. Don't forget, we're on Twitter collectively at American Spuddy. We are technically speaking an autonomous collective there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at Calf Name Brian. I am on Twitter at Benjamin HK01. Nobody's going to call it X. It's it's going to be like, you know, it's still Sears Tower. It's still Pines Field. It's still Metricon. Okay, maybe that one less than the other examples, but I'm just very used to it being Metricon. Port Adelaide 12-11-83, defeated by Collingwood 13-7-85. When we previewed this game, I said, if Collingwood win, it's one of their signature come from behind wins, right? You can't keep getting away with it! That's exactly what happened. Uh, Port led by 17 after three, and then Collingwood roared back very quickly. Within the first two minutes of the fourth, they got to within a goal. They tied it with 10-13 to go. And then we had a bunch of lead changes. And finally, Jamie Elliott kicked what proved to be the winning goal with 3.13 to go. You know that spot he kicked the goal from against Essendon? He did that twice in the fourth quarter. Also, July 24th is the anniversary of that winner against Essendon, which was also round 19. Like, crazy round 19s are the new norm. So I bet next year, like, every round 19 game will be like an 80-point blowout. That's the only way to sentence, right? But this was an amazing game because it lived up to the hype. It lived up to the atmosphere. You know, there are only a few times a year in the world of sports where you could have that. You know, a game build as game of the year and then it actually lives up to it. Like in college football, a lot of times you have, you know, oh, it's going to be the game of the year and then it's just a blowout. This was everything you could have asked for and then some. Elliot ends up being the hero. If you're Port on one side, you played him way tougher than you did last time. You probably were the better team by most measures didn't take enough advantage of the chances they had especially in the third quarter when they kicked three five yeah they were clearly the better team in the third especially late in the third quarter but this game was just a ripper from the get-go you had sam powell pepper with the first goal of the game off of a really sexy move where he first slipped away from nathan murphy then game darcy moore the don't argue and scored with his right foot from the right side Ball kind of tailed off weirdly. It was was a really entertaining play. Bald guys with mustaches are not supposed to be cool. And Sam Powell Pepper is really fucking cool. Does he make up for Andrew Tate? I mean, Andrew Tate also has a beard, kind of. So I wouldn't even put him in that same category. But yeah, back and forth first half. Third quarter, Port were clearly the better team. Started to pull away, but couldn't pull away enough. And... I think it was Rudy Edsall who said, like, there's something especially uncomfortable about a 17-point lead. The fact that it's still within three goals with Collinwood's great finishing ability. And, I mean, the it kind of wrote itself. You saw that big graphic at the start of the fourth quarter. Collinwood have won 11 of their past 15 games in which they've trailed at three-quarter time. Make it 12 out of 16, thanks in large part to Jamie Elliott. And also, they were the better team just playing through the rain late. But yeah, Jamie Elliott ended up being the star here. This, you know, you want him to lose because it's Collingwood, but this is like the most fun, enjoyable group of individuals that could possibly be Collingwood. And I hope nothing ruins that. I hope we don't find out something either immediately or, you know, years later about something really ugly that's been going on because even though you want him to lose, like seeing the way... They celebrated after winning this one, not just because it was yet another comeback on the road to do it in Taylor Adams 200th game. It was a really just phenomenal scene, just how 
fired up and excited they were. And Adams lived up to the milestone occasion. The, the best part of this, I think, they're really playing with house money in games like these, where, like, if they didn't finish the comeback, or just be like, all right, we got beat. We're still in good shape. On to the next one. But they're just like, but of course, they're winning to have as much fun as they can. And also, Craig McRae's post-game comments were awesome. He was asked about, like, Ken Hinckley's quotes for earlier in the week, and he was saying, like, yeah, I got, you know, stuff that adds spice to the game is good. And it's like, thank you. I I really want to keep liking Craig McRae. I hope he doesn't turn into, like, a, a Bill Belichick type where it's like, damn, I don't like you, but you're really good. Craig McRae is just a really enjoyable person. And Belichick's got some some really great sound bites as well, talk with, like, analysis and stuff. Oh, yeah, so. but still, like, you're happy to see Bill Belichick lose. Like, I don't think anyone looks at Collingwood each week and it's like, man, I really want to beat Craig McRae. No, it's like, man, I want to beat Collingwood because yeah. they're Collingwood. Maybe it's like, maybe, maybe Braden Mayer, or maybe Mason. Honestly, the Daycos brothers, because they're because they're talked about so much. Yeah. Nothing the Daycos brothers themselves have done to earn that. Just the fact that they're by Daycom who they are. The fact that they're the Daycos brothers. But I don't think, I don't think anyone looks at these guys and says like, I really want to beat this guy. I really want to ruin Craig McRae's afternoon. I want to ruin Taylor Adams' 200. I guess Adams could be a bit agitating at times, but loved how he played again. It was their older guard that really succeeded in the middle of this game between Pendlebury's side bottom and Adams. And after a stretch where it had been so in the younger guard doing so well, there was less of Bobby Hill dominating. He got his due elsewhere, though. And that was something that you noted. Yeah, he only had, I think, one goal. It was the one that tied the game with 10 minutes left when they got going on a counterattack, had numbers for it. It was Bo McCreary getting the steal on Ryan Burton. Bo McCreary, like, it's hard to describe his game. Like, you know, if you were to compare him to someone or ask what his strengths are, you know what his strengths are? He makes winning plays. I was going to say, like, a right place, right time. He's just winning player, and he's just a win. One of their, one of their best, one of their best pressure players, that's a big thing for him, is pressure, really strong tackler, and manages to kick some amazing goals as well. But yeah, Bobby Hill did not get to work his usual magic inside 50. You know, it was one of the reasons Port were ahead for most of this game. But he did such a good job bringing himself to the game. That's something that, like, Jalon's forwards couldn't do, where, like, you're not getting opportunities inside 50, find a way to impact the game, and he did a great job of that. I, I really think this was a game that, for the most part, Collingwood won rather than Port lost. That said, yeah, you're going to regret those missed opportunities. Aaliyah Aaliyah had 10 intercepts, but overall, Collingwood kept things away from him largely. You know who I think was my favorite player in this game for Port, even though his numbers weren't that crazy? Jason Horn Francis or uh, Dean Dersma's son, Xavier. Xavier Dersma. He was, like, especially in the first half. Oh, yeah, I, he was their most noticeable guy. Yeah, I I was telling you about that. You know, obviously, I, I, have to, I was watching Frio and Sydney as well, but Dersma got a but it was one of Dersma's best games in a while, maybe the best quarter that we'd seen out of him. The second quarter was one of his best in a long time. He'd had he had six disposals and a goal off a big contested mark against Josh Dacoff, was crumbing in the pocket, and I think had he gotten the ball a bit more in the fourth quarter, just had that front space just off contest, he might have been able to produce another bowen or two that could have gotten port the win in this game so glad durst was bounced back so well from that injury and that he's played well in a couple of games since his recovery and we're i think we're also behind him 
even more because we've gotten to talk with his father a bit through social media. I'm looking forward to Xavier and his brother Zane facing off next year. Even if we didn't have that personal angle, I just thought he was really good in this game. Dan Houston was really solid again. Just the difference was that Collingwood did their typical thing. Um, I don't have a ton to analyze around there other than that Scott Pendlebury with 28 disposals and 581 meters runs way too well for someone with as many miles on him as he has. That he's been able to hold up so well over so many years is insane. Steel side bottom at a really good second half and fourth quarter. Finished with a goal off 26 disposals, gained 502 meters. This was just, this is the sort of game that really makes you think, man, I don't know. It's it's going to take something special to stop this Collingwood team. When you feel like you do not everything right, but damn near everything right, and are playing at home with the crowd behind you and everything, and you still end up on the wrong end of it, it's just something ridiculous is going to have to happen for Collingwood not to win the flag. Yeah. I am adamant that the only thing in Collingwood's way is Melbourne. I think there are other teams that could do it. There are people that are saying the Cats, which, like, I don't necessarily see, although I guess, you know, if you play, like, a really clean game not turning the ball over, it can be doable. In September, now, I think I think Collingwood's midfield is too strong. That's, that's my concern. I think the Lions, not the problem is away the Lions, I can't trust at the G. At Marvel, sure, but... They, yeah, but they, that's the G. Yeah, that's not where finals are. You know what? I could see the Lions springing the surprise, beating Collingwood round 23 at Marvel, and then losing to them again when they match up in September. I I wouldn't be shocked if Port were the ones who could do it, honestly. Like, I'm looking... The thing that I did... The thing that I questioned about Port, it wasn't as much of an issue this game. I think in a rematch, it would be more pressing, would be their fullbacks. All right. Here's my craziest take. Even despite what's happened head-to-head, you know who, the way they're playing right now... Could be one of the tougher matchups for him, for Collingwood. Yeah, GWS. That would be ridiculously funny. It would be so difficult for the Giants to get to a prelim to, to face Collingwood, though. I mean, let's let's just envision any scenario where they matched up. I could see it just being like, guess what? We can counterattack too, and it's just like a. And guess what? We have maybe the best D fifty of the competition, where it's just like an all out attack both ways. But then Sam Taylor steps up, and you have a day where like. It would require guys like Jesse Hogan to kick straight. A lot of things would have to go right, but I can see a way for it to happen. Anyway, this was just... I'm just so happy that this was such a great game and that it lived up to the atmosphere because, as I said, a lot of times you have a game that's super hyped up and it just can't match it. When you have a game that's hyped up and is a great game, usually you get one or the other. You have great games out of nowhere, you have really hyped up games. When both come together, it's pretty dang cool. And that's just something that I'm going to appreciate, which I think it's going to be really hard to talk this for game of the year. Even though we've had, you know, an after the siren winner, a crazy Sydney Derby comeback. We had port stopping an after the siren goal at the goal line. I, I still think just when you consider the circumstances, best visit, this is the game. This is the best home and away game of the year, period, paragraph. Taylor Adams, a goal, 25 disposals, 597 meters gained. Nick Dathos, a goal, 25 disposals, nine clearances. Uh, wasn't, you know, all over the ball, but I think he was more involved physically in this game. Do you see it a lot of times? It's the uncontested possessions. Uh, I think no coaches votes. Yeah, no coaches votes for Nick Dathos. So he's stranded on 
99 still has a... I mean, he's still probably going to win the award, but just for him to not get any is very rare. So he's still 15 ahead of Christian Petraka. I was actually dissecting, you know, how some of these coaches' votes came out this week, and I'll probably put that on Twitter at some point. We'll probably be up by the time this episode is out. I think there are two possible ways that the votes could have gone. The, the math behind some of these is actually really interesting. Between Brisbane and Geelong, this poor Collingwood game, and then also Melbourne and Adelaide from Sunday. But yeah, none for Dacos. Josh Dacos, a goal behind, 24 disposals, 13 contestant possessions, 507 meters. Jack Crisp, 23 disposals. And Darcy Cameron, who really deserves a lot of credit just for like, you know, 45 hitouts is really cool. 16 disposals, including 12 contestant possessions is nice. He kicked behind, but I think he contributes so much to this team's structure and how it allows everyone else to set up in their spaces. And I mean, he's really one of the cornerstones of this operation right now. I was surprised that Mason Cox didn't get some more ruck time, but with Cameron being so dominant, wasn't really necessary. And Scott Lysette getting beaten pretty solidly for the second week in a row to the point where he got subbed out. The, that's one thing. If Porter going to go on a finals run, they need Lysette to be better. They can win a lot of games without Zach Butters being in God mode. They need Scott Lysette to be very solid. And Butters was pretty good in this game, kicking a point from 31 disposals. I know that there was questions with an injury throughout the week. Didn't look hobbled at all. The other thing about Cameron, I love when what he can create when you put him and Brody Majacek together in the forward 50 for aerial contests. I feel like they play off each other really well. Cameron and or McStay and Majacek, yes. Majacek is strong enough of a mark, but if you have a body bigger than him in there, then he'll have more space to run and lead because that tall matchup will get additional focus. One other thing I want to touch on, you mentioned the Lysette sub. Uh, Collingwood sub looked like a management thing as well. Uh, Tom Mitchell coming out for Oleg Markov wasn't really a like-for-like like sub. I think that was just planned, but they seemed to slide around the other pieces well enough to make it work. Yeah, Mitchell had been the sub the previous week himself, so I think this was all a management plan. I don't It's It's just weird that they had it all done like middle of the third quarter as they were kind of slipping a bit. And it was just weird that it was Markov who they had chosen to be the one to come in for. Because I think they were planning to take Mitchell out the whole way. I think with I think with a combination of Pendlebury, Sidebottom, and Adams, particularly Pendlebury and Adams in the middle of the ground off those center bounces, maybe Mitchell wasn't as necessary there. And with them needing to come back, having Markov as a run and carry from halfback was useful. So I think it went kind of as they envisioned it, actually. I think it was really good foresight from Craig McRae. couple of team stats in this game that were really interesting. Port plus 13 on inside 50s, which checks out with feeling like this was a game they probably should have won. Collingwood plus 23 on hitouts. I'm surprised it was that pronounced. Uh, Port plus 15 on tackles, including, how about this? 15 to 2 inside 50. Collingwood only recording... Two tackles inside 50 for the entire game seems very, very strange. I think it's a combination of Port often kicking inside 50 instead or being able to get out the back to prevent that. Port's own pressure was very good. They played up to Collingwood in that aspect, and in most aspects. both ways was awesome. This, this was a finals-type game. I would love for this matchup to come upon us again, either in a prelim or the grand final itself. I don't care what round it happens in. I mean, I guess that's the only two where it feasibly could, considering that they're almost certainly entering finals as one and two. 
oh, there's a world in which Port can drop out of the I top. guess Port can drop to third. There's a world in which it happens. Port comes home with Showdown, their road showdown this week. Then at Geelong, GWS, at Frio and Richmond. I think they will still end up in second. There's a scenario out of this where they can, like, all of those games except for Frio are very, very losable. And, I mean, Richmond, I feel like, you know, that's, I like their teams, but God, Richmond's such a hard team to read, like I've said. And Port and Richmond have delivered a bunch of really good matchups. They can win one of their final six games, or one of their final seven, I guess, and you can get there in a world where it's not that they peak too early and it's just other teams playing well. I mean, I don't see that happening. I see them winning at least two of their remaining games, but but they will. this this is a possibility. The Lions are just a game back. The Demons just two back. I think staying ahead of the Lions is vital because it's a totally different matchup where it's played. Port stats, other than Butters, whom I already mentioned, Connor Rosie kicking two goals from 20 disposals and 641 meters gained. The coaches recognized him as best on ground, getting nine out of the 10 votes. That's fair. Dan Houston with 25 disposals, 14 contested possessions, eight clearances and eight tackles. Surprised he didn't get love from the coaches. Ryan Byrne kicking two behinds from 22 disposals at 742 meters. He had to play a bit of Darcy Byrne-Jones' role with Byrne-Jones out concussed. That was a really difficult out for Port to have to work around. And I think that's an underrated absence there, even with the power still putting on those 15 tackles inside 50. Sam Powell Pepper kicked two goals from 17 disposal and seven tackles. I think he may be the hardest runner in the league. Is that a fair assessment? He might be. I just, he's kind of like a bowling ball in the best possible way. I just, what a fun player. Also, he's such a good bet for the first goal of the game. It's like him, Josh Dacos, Alex Neal Bolin. I guess those are really the three best bets each week, aside from like milestone guys. Jason Horn Francis with a goal from 18 disposals. Willem Drew kicking two behinds from 16 disposals and 16 tackles. Holy cow. He went to Nick Dacosovic, was able to keep him somewhat in check, which may have been why his impact was muted, particularly in the first half. A moment of silence for the end of Francis Evans' unbeaten streak. He falls to 12-1. and one. All hail the new king, Kai Lowen, at a much less intimidating 6-0. Which is why I mentioned him earlier. The king is dead. Long live the king. Sunday footy. GWS 15-13-103, defeating Gold Coast 9-9-63. The Giants have won again in Canberra. First time since round 7 of 2019 against the Saints. And that's their sixth win in a row overall. It was only a two-point game at half. GWS should have been up more, but Toby Green was having accuracy issues. Second half, they really stuck it to him. Uh, the GWS midfield totally outplaying Gold Coast was not how I saw this going down. I mean, I saw it as a possibility. I didn't expect it to be that dominant. I could have seen the Giants being better in both 50s, but I thought for sure the Suns midfield would have held up, and instead it was... I'd say GWS largely controlled the flow there. It was kind of, it was Steven Cornelio and Josh Kelly controlling there. A lot of Lockie Ash and Lockie Whitfield and Callan Ward as well. I mean, Ash a bit further off the center, Whitfield containing from the back with a few important marks there. Ward, I'd say was kind of a third guy after Cornelio and Kelly. This is why Cornelio was my main character. 
candidate because I had an idea that if GWS were able to get the better of the midfield contest, it would be Cornelio just burrowing through and getting the job done there, getting things out to Kelly and Ward, and that was the case. And looking forward, even with Toby Green having his accuracy issues, he was still a nightmare for whoever was on him the entire game. Ben Long was not the right matchup from the beginning. I had tweeted out, why don't you switch Charlie Ballard onto him? Yes, Ballard's such a great intercept mark overall, but Toby needs that sort of attention. They ended up going with Will Powell. I still think Charlie Ballard would have been the right move because Toby beat Powell as well. I will say this, the one real positive for Gold Coast, one of my favorite players, Mac Andrew, is getting better and better as an interceptor. He had eight marks for this game. His kicking is still shaky. It has improved because it couldn't have gotten worse. It's still got a ways to go. That's pretty clearly what he has to keep improving on. I love watching this kid, and I want to see him in a lineup every week the rest of the year. And I want to see Hawago Oya in there the rest of the year. And Bailey Humphrey as well, probably just to see if he can get some more steady games. Yeah, Oya had an intercept and an assist and kicked a goal of his own, but that was basically it. His touches were very high quality, but just... Nowhere near enough in terms of quantity. So that sucked. I mean, a lot of the delivery to him wasn't great. I mean, the Giants nearly doubled up on disposal efficiency inside 50. Let's just look at that quickly. The Giants, 65.3% disposal efficiency inside 50. The Suns, 34%. This is a stat that matters. But Oya is also such a fast player that you could throw a hit. You know, he can go get in there kind of like Bobby Hill did, where it's like, all right, the game's not coming to me. I'm going to go to the game. Kind of like Bobby, kind of like Kazi, as we'll get into. On, on the negative side, yeah, Bailey Humphrey, I noticed that he was playing in this game like twice. I'm glad he didn't get subbed out, but I'd just like to see more consistency out of Humphrey. We saw in those games up in Darwin that he can be unbelievably good. And part of a young player's struggles is, you know, just getting that week-to-week consistency. So I'd like to see more of that from him. And then, man, Ben King, not good. Just very, very quiet again. Limited by Sam Taylor. That was the main assignment there. You know who else got a ton of credit for his defensive work that I didn't notice a ton during the game, but looking at the numbers after and and hearing Sam Taylor talk about him? Is it Jack Buckley? Yeah, Jack Buckley. Uh, Sam Taylor's postgame comments, he's like, Half the time in his interview with Fox Footy, just talking about how great Buckley was. And I mean, make 15 disposals, 11 intercepts. He played a really good game. Taylor with 15 disposals, 10 marks, and 9 intercepts of his own. But Buckley being able to, it's reminiscent of what we see with a lot of other teams. You can see it with, for example, Collingwood of the Brisbane Lions. You have your really good one-on-one guy taking a key matchup. I guess Buckley at times was able to take K as well. He was able to cut off Levi Casbolt, who was just a big and hard to work around, so credit there, but you have a guy who can take that big 1v1, it frees up your best defender to be a more roving center half back. You see that with Harris Andrews, Darcy Moore, thanks to Jack Buckley, and sometimes Isaac Cumming and Harry Himmelberg, you can see it for Sam Taylor as well, and why he can be free to play his best. It's amazing that the Giants were able to have this strong of a defense, and I'm still surprised that Harry Himmelberg has stayed in defense and it's worked out for him. I'm glad that it's happened because it's allowed Callum Brown to be the forward that he's supposed to be. He's shifted back a few times here and there, but not for any more than a few minutes at a time. And yes, Callum Brown is a forward. Like, yes, Harry Hamelberg is a skilled forward as well, but like Callum Brown was so 
obviously meant to be a forward. Again, it was that game against Hawthorne last year in the rain that really made it obvious. The stuff that he could do, not just on set shots, but from the ground. Did you mention Isaac Cumming a couple minutes ago? Yeah, I did, and how he can sometimes be one of their steadier players in defense, kind of below Taylor and Buckley. You know what I like about him is he knows, and because I was just going back and watching their game against Adelaide from the week before, because I had never really given that its full attention. He is really good at like knowing when to shoot forward, and he got a goal in this game, which is super rare, but he's done that a few other times as well, where he'll like, come up and play kind of just outside the forward 50. His morphing there has allowed them to retain the ball in 50 sometimes, and yeah, he kicked a rare goal in this game. His second in four games and his third for his career. But yeah, second half was really where this game got ripped apart. After the team's traded goals to start the third quarter, it was an eight-goal GWS run to pull away, including one where Toby Green put on a nice spin move to get past Mac Andrew. Other than that, uh, let's see, the Giants had led by two goals midway through the second quarter. Suns got the last two of the half, including one with just 19 seconds left to cut it to two. That was big. And I think that's what really kept him in the game for a few minutes into the second half. And then it was, like I said, it was really that orange tsunami just ran away with it. By the end of the third, GWS has an 80-49 to 49 lead, and they got things all the way out to 101-49 to 49 before Jack Lukosius got a goal to stop their own. Lukosius played well. Usually, if the Suns are getting beaten up like that, he's not playing such a good game, so that was that was strange. Lukosius finished with three goals, 16 disposals, and nine marks. He was not the reason they lost this game. Uh, this game also was part of why I sincerely believe there is like a global conspiracy to stop anyone from getting 11 intercept marks because Sam Collins had five in the first like eight and a half minutes. We thought that graphic was wrong on Fox footy. We were sitting down, still eating dinner while watching this. And we saw that and we were wondering, wait, is that intercept marks? It's probably intercept possessions or I just marks. I don't know. It was five intercept marks. He got to nine by the end of the third. He got the 10th and the fourth. And then he had a chance at the 11th late in the game and just kind of whiffed on it. It was like he would have needed to leap for it, but it, it, it makes you think. Not enough people are talking about this. The media doesn't want you to know this. The media doesn't want you to know. They will murder the first player who gets to 11 intercept marks. Dylan McLaughlin will do it himself. Stephen Canelio with a goal off 29 disposals. Josh Kelly, who Ethan always confuses with Jake still. Yeah, that one's just... You know, I figured everyone else out. This one I'm not going to figure out. It's just going to be this way. Josh stopped Jake Kelly. A goal off 28 disposals, including 14 contested possessions. I'm wondering, you know, he's getting the ball at a similar rate to how he did last year. Are his touches more impactful this year? They're definitely more noticeable. Or are we just focusing more on the Giants in general? I mean, that, that could be part of it. This was more like the type of game they were involved in last year, except not boring. Except, I mean... Usually the big run that put the game away came before halftime last year. There still wasn't all that much baby-making footy here. No, because it was it was an entertaining, like, eight-goal run. Uh, Harry Hemmelberg, 26 disposals, 12 marks, 10 intercepts. Lockie Ash, 25 disposals. Lockie Whitfield, 25 disposals, 9 marks, 498 meters. Callan Ward, 23 disposals. Connor Iden, 21 disposals and 12 marks. Welcome back, Brett Daniels, who really adds a lot to this forward group. Two goals, two behinds, 20 disposals. Isaac Cumming, that rare goal with 19 disposals and eight marks. Toby Green kicked just three, four off 14 disposals. Yeah, they could have almost tripled him up if Toby had been kicking straight. But I, I just want to mention 
before we finish talking about this game, again, how wild it is to me that the Giants, who we thought at the starting year, their defensive group was really shaky. It was like, what? It was, we knew about Taylor. We knew about Himmelberg. We hadn't seen Buckley for a while. That impacted things. He was a weak link at the start of the year, too. We didn't think Haynes was going to be able to stand up like this. We didn't think as much of Isaac coming. Connor Iden has really grown into that group. And also, just Adam Kingsley knows how to use them. We thought their midfield would take a step back without Taranto, but still be good. We thought their forward group was still good. But yeah, the, the defense is what's taken this team to a new level instead of, you know, a bunch of like 120 to 100 losses. The uh, interesting team set, I just want to point out the lack of hitouts in this game altogether. Uh, 37 to 26 in favor of the Suns, but I just want to shout out Kieran Briggs for not getting manhandled by Jared Witts and proving yet again that he is the guy for the Giants. His story this year, I think, does not get talked about anywhere near enough. Like, if I was a journalist in Australia, I would go and profile him. Uh, other than that, let's see. Suns committed 14 more turnovers. Giants won marks inside 50, 15 to 8. Giants recorded 14 more tackles. And here's your best evidence that GWS was running really well. 15 bounces to 2. Now I need to ask Swamp what the record is for bounces in a game. We've seen teams hit 20 this year, so I know it's nowhere near the record. But but like the margin of bounces is a, is a thing. I think we've seen like a 20 to 1 or something. I bet that was against the Eagles. I think it might have been Hawthorne doing that. Sounds about right with the kind of bloodbath that game was. Also not in my cards for this game was Sam Flanders leading the disposal count with 31. Nine clearances as well. Stephen King has kept him in the contest and has used it really well. Rory Atkins active for the back as well, behind from 29 disposals, seven marks and 730 meters gained. Noah Anderson a point from 26. Will Powell a point from 21 at 563 meters. Sam Collins didn't want to get murdered by Gill. That's why he stuck it with the 10 intercept marks, 11 marks and 14 intercepts total from a 17 disposal day. Mac Andrew with 16 disposals as well as those eight marks that you mentioned earlier. And Lacocious, three goals straight from 16 and nine marks. The gap between his ceiling and his floor is really frustrating. But we've seen him play much closer to the ceiling much more often this year. Melbourne 14-13-97, defeating Adelaide 13-15-93. I was locked into the other games, but I did pay attention to the last, like, 10 minutes here, so... I still haven't really watched this one in full. I'm just going to give you the points that I took away very quickly and then pass it off to you, Benjamin. So first off, uh, Isaac Rankin was really good and then he got hurt. Yeah, did his hamstring late. The Crows did their typical thing where they're the better team, but they don't kick straight. That was like the whole first half. And then looked like Kazi Pickett did some exciting shit and Taj Boy Woden got an important goal. And yeah, that's... Basically all I got. Oh, and Adam Tomlinson was actually good. He was on Darcy Fogarty for the whole game. And other than one relatively bad free kick that he gave up, he played Fogarty quite well. I was surprised that he held his own. And I thought that Joel Smith was the sub because Simon Goodwood thought, mm, maybe Tomlinson isn't the right guy to take this matchup. Nope. He did just fine. Yeah, the, in the past few games he's been in, you know, hadn't been in since King's birthday, but was all right then as well. And yeah, just my perception of Adam Tomlinson has improved a lot compared to last year. I'm wondering in hindsight, maybe if last year he was kind of getting his legs back a bit after doing his ACL in 2021. At times, it's been 
you know, tough for him to be left out. I think that the defensive list decisions are even tougher now as a result. When Joel Smith did end up coming into the game, he was subbed in for Ben Brown, who had been quiet. And what did he do? Immediately get a goal after the Crows had ended up leveling the game at the start of the fourth quarter and then nearly got another, but it was ruled to have been touched. Just The sub worked immediately. But yeah, how in the world did they even get to the spot where Joel Smith's impact was so pressing? You're correct, Ethan, that outside from the first few minutes in which Melbourne got the first six inside 50s, the Crows largely were the better team in the first half. Good first half from Luke Nan Curtis on debut. He was a late in. His parents had driven all the way to Adelaide thinking they'd watch him in the sandful. Instead, they immediately turned around and went to Victoria. So a pointless 16-hour drive. Once again, another victory for having a good national highway system because that drive should be shorter than 16 hours. Yeah, 450 miles each way should be... Actually, it should. you know what? It's then it should probably be a little bit more direct. Well, you know what? It shouldn't be that much shorter, actually. But still, our highway system is good. We... We got our issues. We got a ball and highway system, though. Healthcare, highway system, we chose highways. It was the right choice. It felt like a very Crows first quarter. They kicked 1-4 and trailed by 4, but had gotten a lot more of the ball later on in the quarter. Then they conceded 6 of the first 7 inside 50s of the second, and all of a sudden, it was out to a 29-point Demons lead. Throughout that first quarter and a half, their best players were Kazi Pickett and Cade Chandler which surprised me for a number of reasons. Firstly, Kazi started the game in the midfield again and then worked brilliantly from there. I would never have expected him to be someone to get that midfield time to start the game, but it meant he got a lot of the ball early and was able to be confident from there. Second week in a row that done that, right? Yeah, and it's corresponded with Petraka being more forward at times as well. And even with Petraka having a bit of a quieter game, especially in terms of, you know, not scoring a goal, it totally worked out. And then after that opening segment, Conley just went anywhere he wanted in the four two-thirds and it completely worked. Meanwhile, Chandler in his first game back in a couple weeks led the Demons with three goals. And for a while, I was concerned that the two of those guys, Pickett and Chandler, would get in each other's way. That was not the case at all. Chandler's another really smart player on the field, knows how to play well, both as kind of a, a lower and higher up forward. And I'm hoping that the two of them can both stand. It's going to be tough when you also have Charlie Spargo that you might want to bring back in, especially for pressure. The issue with Brody Grundy probably finding his way in again at some point, but I'm hoping that Cade keeps his spot. It will be hard to take him out after that. I don't think he's out this coming week for Richmond, I'll say that. Overall, though, the Crows did win the territory battle for much of the second quarter, but they scored 3-9 for the first half, so 2-5 for the second quarter, and went into the long break, trailing by 13. The only thing that had kept him in the game was two Isaac Reichen goals. One of them was particularly brilliant. Just working on the boundary well, controlling the whole passage of play and finishing it himself. Had the Crows won, Reichen would have been the reason. Him getting hurt just sucks, because he's so fun to watch. And he'd gotten hurt just after running for a ball really hard and kicking effectively to Darcy Fogarty in the final minutes, too. I guess I'm kind of skipping a bit ahead for that, but looking back at the third quarter, that was where Melbourne were able to assert their dominance a bit more. Didn't stretch it out to a crazy margin. It was just 24 points at three-quarter time, but I thought that they'd steadied things a bit in general. A couple really good passages 
scrum kick-ins. They may have to change up some of their signaling, though, because BT made it very clear that Stephen May putting down the ball in the goal square meant that he was kicking it right down the middle for Max gone to mark, and it worked twice, and they'll probably try to keep doing it, but need to find a way to single it differently now. Gone with another really complete game. Beautiful first goal. Just couldn't hit the ball any better. We've talked about, by the way, how like signals and footy, like some of the signs from the bench are very obvious and people need to start disguising those better. Plus, it's fun. Like I've made this example before, like in college football, like it, it shouldn't just be like a very obvious signal. Like, for example, the catfish Burger King Selena Gomez play. Like, only people on the inside will know what that means. Yeah, like the miscolored Cincinnati Bengals John Travolta play. Exactly. I think I've actually seen something like that before. Because that's the one I'm going with. Catfish Burger King Selena Gomez. So three-quarter time comes. Taylor Walker had had a lengthy stint on the bench. Nick Murray had landed awkwardly in a contest with Jacob Van Roy, and turns out he tore his ACL. This is bigger, like, not just long-term, obviously, but short-term than the Rankin injury to me. Because they have other really good forwards. Even if Tom Duday was healthy, losing Murray. But now they're without their two best tall backs. It means Butts will need to be better, obviously, to the point where he doesn't need to be subbed off. More of the onus will go on Josh Worrell. Max Michael, anyway, may need to take some taller assignments. He was managed this week. Could have really used him on one of those smaller targets like Chandler. So you're saying they're going to need Butts to put Butts in the seat. Boo! And then the fourth quarter happened, and all of a sudden, Melbourne's biggest weakness was exposed yet again like it was the previous week against the Brisbane Lions. They're often very good at center clearances, some great contested ball winners in there like Jack Viney and I guess Brayshaw, who did their job for a lot of this game again. But if their opponent can win the clearance themselves, they have a hard time stopping it. And the Crows scored four quick goals and tied up the game with just over 15 minutes remaining. It went very quickly from, I have no need to go back and watch this game, to scores are level. Yeah. And Taylor Walker had elevated as well. A big fourth quarter out of him would have been the other thing alongside Riken's excellent performance that would have been universally praised had the Crows won. Then you had that Joel Smith goal and that almost goal, so a seven-point margin. Then Smith got an assist centering the ball for Tajwell Woden with Lockie Hunter boxing out of defender a bit as well, you know, wasn't a blocking foul at all, just did a good job clearing the path for Wawoda to get the mark. So a 14-point lead for the Demons, make it 20 after Neil Bowen hits Kate Chandler in stride. At which point, I'm thinking, all right, this is taken care of, and they don't score another goal. That still, you'd think, all right, they've still got enough of a lead, they should be able to finish this off, right? I mean, you're up 20 with 10 minutes left. The Saints and North were still at halftime, so I was paying attention, I I kind of accepted that this was a done deal. And it very nearly wasn't. Once again, the Crows getting out and using some of their speed the other way. Some accurate kicking was on display as well. Taylor Walker actually involved twice on this next goal where he went into 50 for Shane McAdam and then got the ball back and bounced it through himself. Ed Langdon, in his 150th game, had a chance to put it away, but he missed I thought that the door was shut when Alex Neil Bowen got Jackson Haley holding the ball. I know that call was contested by some, but the fact that he was even able to make a contest of it when he was 1v4 in that part of the oval was outstanding. But the Crows got the next goal. 
They got it actually rebounding off of one of Max Gaughan's clearances, and Brody Smith kicked a long-range goal. So there's 10 points in it with four and a half minutes left. Demons can't put it away. Max Gaughan takes a lot of time off the clock after he marks, but he misses. It was shortly after that where Riken did his hamstring. And again, it was an effective kick. He would have gotten the assist to Darcy Fogarty on that, but Fogarty missed. But the Crows rebounded through a Jordan Dawson intercept mark. And then Kazi gave up 50 for going past the mark by a bit. It was, you know, the right call. Irritated that I thought maybe Kazi's performance disregarded if that play had mattered more. Taylor Walker managed to beat Stephen May. So it's a one goal game with a minute 26 left. The Crows get a super clean center clearance. And then Wayne Miller makes a pretty poor decision, honestly. He decides to kick two the Fogarty and Tomlinson one-on-one matchup. Instead. He didn't have to rush it. No, he didn't have to rush it. He didn't need to go for a mark that deep as well. He needed to wait for someone to put on a lead or look for a bit of a shorter option. Instead, it went off hands, and the Demons were able to control from there a crucial mark from Jacob Van Royen to kill time. Off a stoppage, Jake Weaver does hear that he needs to play on when he intercepts Rory Sloan's kick. Kazi doesn't finish it off with a goal, but a behind is perfectly fine because it means the Crows can't get downfield again. Just getting inside 50 even was enough at that point to to finish it off. So we had three games this round that were technically not over until the final siren, even though this one was decided. It was like put out of reach in the final 20, 30 seconds, technically. I mean, I guess the D's put it out of reach, but it was still at the point where... One kick could have changed the outcome of the game. So we had three of those this round, and a fourth that was darn close to that, which is why this show has taken so long. We had a lot to talk about. Once again, the Crows lose a game that they could have won. No, finals are not totally out of question for them. They're just going to have to do something impressive. They pretty much have to win out. Or, well, I mean, they're at 8 and 10. They've got to have a good percentage. Four wins, They'd do it four wins and a draw should, but it's going to be a tough road, including, you know, hosting showdown this week. I still think this team is in position to contend for the next few years, but we may be looking back at this season eventually thinking like, man, this could have been a good shot in their contending window and they couldn't take care of their kicking in close games. And that's what cost them an important year out. So we'll see how long this window is. We don't know how guys are going to age, who's going to stick around, who's going to come and go, but their finals hopes are nearly dead now. And if they can really only look at themselves for that, which sucks because they have, in a lot of ways, made a ton of progress this year. If you had told me at the start of the year, the Crows would be in 13th at 8 and 10 through 19 rounds, I would say, all right, sounds okay. Sounds like, you know, a step, just... They still can't get their shit together on the road and that they've lost at least four now, maybe five games that they probably should have won. Just it's got to stick just because this could be a team that could be securely in the eight, could be pushing for a top four spot and instead probably looking more towards next year. And now you're going to start next year without two of your better defenders, probably in Tom Dude and Nick Murray. I think that Murray injury hurts so much more than people realize. Yes, it's five losses, by the way. And I'll tell you a bit about those five right now as a refresher. Round one at GWS. They kicked four goals nine in the first quarter. They still led by five at three-quarter time, but kicked 12-18 for the game and lost by 16. Round seven against Collingwood. They kicked 3-6 in the first quarter, led by 22 early in the fourth, 
kicked 7-16 overall and lost by one. A pattern emerged. The pattern continued. Round 15 at Collingwood. Kicked 1-5 in the first. Led by 13 at three-quarter time. Kicked 11-15 for the game and lost by two. These quarters that I mentioned, they also were just dominant in terms of possession, in terms of territory. In these past two rounds, they led by 17 at three-quarter time against the Giants and let that slip away, conceding five goals to none to lose by 14. And then this past Sunday, they scored 3-9 in the first half despite all the time they had forward. Scores were level early in the fourth. They never took the lead, but they lost by four. In those five games that I mentioned, rounds 1, 7, 15, 18, and 19, they kicked 47-72. That's the difference between contending for finals, pushing for a home elimination final, and being well out of it. They missed their first six set shots and trailed 40-14 to midway through the second. That's 30 points I left out there. And still Isaac Rankin and Taylor Walker in the fourth nearly carried them to victory. Oh, and this was without Rory Lair. Yeah, they still managed to nearly do it. But Simon Goodwin's tactics have worked yet again. I talked about this during the week, and we talked about some of the surprises last week with how well Kazi's movement to the middle worked. That worked again this week. Having Chandler back and him and Pickett not being mutually exclusive worked wonders again. And Joel Smith provided that necessary spark as the sub, responsible in their first three scores after things were level early in the fourth. I know that their selection has been questioned sometimes, but in terms of in-game strategy, moving the pieces around, directing the players on the oval, Simon Goodwin has more than proven his worth as of late. I'd mentioned the positive impact of Jack Biney and I guess Bray Shaw in the middle. When the Demons were able to get possession from there, they usually did well off them. Viney with a goal from 27 disposals at 520 meters. Plays his best right there in the center square. Angus Brayshaw, his importance in the middle has been so magnified with Clayton Oliver out. A behind from 26 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 8 clearances, and 7 tackles. You wonder why he may have been given 5 coaches votes by someone in this game. He got 5 overall, and there's a way he might have only gotten 4, but I can see Simon Goodwin giving him 5. Christian Petraka kicked two behinds for 26 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and 482 meters gained. I think maybe Chandler having such a good forward game allowed Petraka to slide into the middle more for those contests. Ed Lydon had 23 disposals. Kazi kicked two three from 20, but such a high-impact player. I'm so glad that he's thrived these past couple weeks getting more of the ball early on. He plays on confidence and needs to get the ball early to be his best, and Goodwin and the Demons have realized that. Max gone, kicking 2-2 from 38 hitouts, 13 disposals and 8 marks. Riley O'Brien was quieted in this game, as the Demons were plus 15 on the hitouts, and defensively, Adam Tomlinson, 11 intercepts and 10 contested possessions. We thought he was washed last year. And even at time earlier this year, he had a terrible game. I forget which round it was. Really before the game against Carlton, I really thought he'd been poor. Uh, Well, yeah, he came back in for that Carlton game. It was, I think it was the loss in the gather round to Essendon that was the issue. But has at least been above replacement level in the three games that he's played since round 12. Crows were cleaner with the ball inside 50 by a good 10%. And they were also the much more tackle-heavy team. Maybe that has to do with some of the possession time late, but I just think it's more in their style. Plus 22 in tackles, the Crows with a very nice 69 tackles for the game, 13-1 to on tackles inside 50. 
managed to force a lot of stoppages with that, but weren't able to kick well off them enough. I am impressed considering the number of changes the Crows made, some by choice, some by force, how well a lot of their pieces that weren't regulars in the lineup earlier this year did. Uh, Harry Schoenberg behind 23 disposals, 9 score involvements. Matt Crouch, who's been doing this in the sand for all year. 22 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 tackles. Jordan Dawson, 22 disposals, 11 tackles. Mitch Hinge, whose role is going to get even bigger with Murray injured, 22 disposals, 9 marks, 555 meters gained. Without watching this game very closely, I thought it looked like a very Mitch Hinge game, like the camera was on him after everything which meant that he was involved, whether it was a positive or negative play, which just sounds like sounds like Mitch Hinge, you know, either a huge plus or a huge minus. Yeah, the huge minus play was before Joel Smith nearly had a second really quick goal, had a bad centering ball, but that didn't end up immediately hurting them. But he is the chaos captain now. I'm sorry, Sam Frost. Isaac Rankin, 3-3 off 20 disposals. Rory Sloan, 20 disposals, 7 tackles. Brody Smith, a goal, 20 disposals, 557 meters gained in. Ben Keyes, two goals off, 19 disposals. Thought that he'd have been running more closely with Petraka. St. Kilda, 9-15-69, defeating North Melbourne, 9-7-61. Fuck. Now, the scoreline would tell you that the Saints were inaccurate and should have won this game by more. It would be correct. No. I don't think so. Even though they were 4-12 for 36 through three quarters and down by 16, I thought North largely were actually better for the most part. I thought their midfield really controlled the second quarter. I thought Davies Uniac was an absolute monster. My issue was on some of North's delivery and disposals inside 50 that let them down. Other than the Saints kicking it accurately, my biggest gripes about this game were some of North's work inside their own forward area. Here's what made this game so weird. Under most circumstances, considering the Saints' history, people would be happy for them. that You know, they've got a real shot at making finals. I still see them when it's all said and done on the outside looking, and they're currently in six. They play Hawthorne this coming week. Who the hell knows what happens then? Think they're going to win, but I can see a world where they lose it. Imagine getting swept by Hawthorne. I mean, North Camp. It's just clearly they don't belong in the eight, and if they make it there will all be annoyed, similar to Essendon, because like they're not going to put up a good fight in whatever elimination final they play. We thought that, which is why this sucks. We thought that in 2020, they still won. Anyway, Luke Davies Uniac was pretty easily the best player in this game. Uh, coaches votes. Yeah, he got the 10, no surprise. Ben McKay with seven coaches votes. He's second most. Uh, he actually had a decent game, but I thought the best defender for North this week was finally Luke McDonald. Though Jackson Archer and Josh Goder were playing well. I told you that Josh Goder would be important. I love Taron Thomas's game. He's got such a high motor. You see him running in both 50s all the time. He's another guy that really does play on confidence as well. And his form just usually builds throughout consecutive games as he keeps his AFL spot. But it was a 33-9 fourth quarter that won the game for the Saints. And you know how you see those ads like, you know, he lost 40 pounds with one simple trick. All his friends hate him, stuff like that. Well, the, the one simple trick was moving Rowan Marshall forward, which probably should have happened sooner. Pretty obvious fix to the Max King absence, and it created matchup problems that the Saints kept getting inside 50. I guess before that, the Saints were really looking at Cooper Sharma to elevate like he had a bit the prior week when he kicked three goals. It was like the only bright spot. He did get one of the goals, 
with 14.43 left, he scored to cut it to four. Marshall had gotten the first goal of the quarter off of a nice setup by Jack Sinclair. Much better game for him. Jack Steele had a really nice finish to this game. He kicked the go-ahead goal off of a really easy intercept with 10.46 left. Uh, Curtis Taylor, who had been good up until that point, just telegraphed a kick for Bailey Scott. Easy intercept and goal for Steele. Then Steele had a nice run down the left wing, and Anthony Caminiti had a big mark at the back of the pack, scored from beyond 50. Eddie Ford had a great setup to Jack Zebel to cut the lead back to a point with 6.56 left. Then you had a pretty iffy call on a free kick pick to the Saints, where Davies Uniac was going to have room for the middle. Ford got called for a hold on Rowan Marshall that I didn't agree with, but Cal Wilkie had a clutch intercept mark, and then Jack Higgins put the game away on a goal with 143 left. Really cool sequence that kind of showcased everything that the Saints needed to go right. Like, all of their performers that were important at the end of the game. First, Marshall wins a tap to Zach Jones, and he kicks a bouncer to Mitch Owens, who's falling and still gets a hand all the way to Higgins, and then Higgins kicks this dribbler through McDonald to stretch the lead to nine, and that does it. There were a couple of really nice goals that they had scored in that fourth quarter between that and the Caminiti mark and Long Bomb. So at least you could say the Saints earned it with some high degree of difficulty goals. They still have not impressed. You know, they beat North by eight. They beat the Eagles by eight. This is like, I want to be happy for the Saints. I want them to be good considering their history. But this, this is probably not a team that should be in the eight. Um, Getting both Hawthorne and North twice really helps. At least this was much more exciting than their last meeting. Uh, I feel for Brett Radden. He deserved a win. It would have been really fun for him to get one against the Saints for obvious reasons. He would have been a main character nominee had he done that. But like, I came away from this game much more impressed with North than I was with the Saints. And the biggest thing is that Eddie Ford is clearly someone who is going to be a part of this team when they're in a competitive window. Thank you. Like I've said before, you know, Part of this season has been about, you know, figuring out who's going to be here when we're for real. And I don't know if he was one that was initially in that category, but he certainly has established himself in it. He got North's first goal in the middle of the first quarter. Had a couple really important marks and some centering balls as well. And it's unfortunate that he had the free kick against him that, you know, I understood the call with how the tackle lingered on the ground. It's a frustrating one to get, though. It had very little to do with the play. I would not have called it. It's a type of play where usually you're able to wave it off because of advantage. Uh, Jack Steele, like I said, really nice bounce back game. Goal, 33 disposals, nine marks, seven clearances. Good to see Marcus Winhager on the ball more. He had a behind, 30 disposals and nine marks. Jack Sinclair, a goal and 29 disposals. Brad Crouch, a little sloppy at times, but very active. A behind, 26 disposals, eight tackles. I still really like Mason Wood. A behind, 25 disposals, nine marks, nine score involvements. 479 meters. Isaiah Wanganine Miller, I thought he was actually really shaky for much of this game. Uh, he had 23 disposals, gained 482 meters. Cal Wilkie, 21 disposals, 10 intercepts. And Rowan Marshall, only 22 hitouts, but 19 disposals, a huge goal and a behind. And yeah, moving him was what really shifted this game in St. Kilda's favor. And I think moving ahead, they're either going to have to figure out someone else to handle ruck duties or just kind of say, all right, we're just going to have Marshall play forward. You know, maybe just like go for a hit out and then race forward and then have someone else take a hit out in their own 50 when needed. I don't know. They're going to have to craft something up that involves him playing forward because that was clearly the fix that they needed 
without Max King. I wonder if Jack, 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 Jack Hayes is ready to return because that would open up the game more for Marshall. Well, Ross Lyon had said that he was dealing with a little hamstring thing and would have been in over Cam and Eddie. So uh, Cam and Eddie was kind of lucky to get that game and he ended up making good on it down the stretch. Yeah, it would be, I think it would be hard to leave him out considering how he was able to close things out. But Hayes makes sense as someone who could get in and be impactful there. Interesting stats from this game. Saints with 77 more disposals. Inside 50 efficiency favored the Saints, 52 to 40. Uh, hitouts favoring North, 63 to 25. But clearances, 42 to 33 for the Saints, including 37 to 23 for stoppage. North did lay 13 more tackles, 88 to 75. And just overall, they showed so much more resistance defensively than they had in the past few weeks. And I really hope they get a win that isn't over West Coast the rest of the way. I hope they have something to show. Like, I hope Rappin gets his win over the Eagles, and I hope North and West Coast can each beat somebody else the rest of the way. That would be really cool. I could see North doing it. No comment on the other part. Well, let's let's see. What are their remaining games? I know they've got West Coast this coming week. Then D's in Tasmania, Bombers at Marvel... Maybe that's the one. I uh, think Gold Coast at Blundstone Arena to close the season. Is that one. more? Yeah, that. I don't see Richmond at the G. It would be really funny if they beat Richmond again, but I think that's one of the less likely. I was. The, I, I, I see a shot at two wins the rest of the way, and they finish the year four and ninety with with some kind of encouraging signs. The Eagles will finish one and twenty-two. I could still see the Eagles winning this coming week. I feel like. It's going to be a weird game because I think the home crowd is actually going to show up really well because it's like, hey, we actually have a chance to see a win instead of like, oh, it's two crap teams. Why bother showing up? North by 58. I don't think they beat them by that much. I think the most they beat them by is like 30. Luke Davies Uniac kicked two behinds for 33 disposals, 23 contested possessions, 12 clearances and 668 meters. Please, North, do not waste his career. Here is giving the Geelong. I guess he's from close enough that that could be considered. He's from, like, across the bay from Geelong, basically. I mean, he would definitely associate more with Melbourne, like, as a city. But I, I can dream, Harold. I can dream, Harold! Harry Sheasel took a lot of kickouts, had 28 disposals, 7 marks, and 647 meters gain. I thank him and Rowan Marshall for winning me my fantasy matchup this week. Darcy Tucker, more positive game with 21 disposals and 8 marks. Will Phillips, 20 disposals and 11 tackles. With Hugh Greenwood still not being in there, Phillips needed to be the more aggressive player on ball, and he was. As you said, a better game out of Ben McKay, 18 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 9 marks. Liam Shields behind from 16 and 8 marks and 7 tackles. And Taron Thomas, 3 goals straight from 14 disposals, 8 contested possessions, and 7 tackles. I hope he's able to keep this confidence. Oh yeah, and Shields did that in just 3 quarters. He got subbed out with some calf soreness. He's old. He did retire last year. I think it's awards time at last. Finally, yeah. Uh, Mark of the Week, your round 18 winner was Jack Lukosius over Josh Battle. Benjamin, give us the round 19 nominees. Yeah, you had Charlie Curnow with a one-hander as Oscar Allen held the other arm. That got Marvel Stadium to roar yet again. Jai Amos took a mark over a pack, including his own teammate, Josh Corbett, but he really got on Tom McCartan's shoulder for that. And then Mitch Hinge had an intercept near the goal square over Josh Worrell. Amos was easily the most impressive of those. Yep, Amos wins. All right, goal of the week. Your round 18 winner was 
your round 19 rising star nominee, Jasper Fletcher. He intercepted a risky Alex Neal bowling kick in a one-on-one against Ed Langdon, had a bounce, and kicked from about 45. Wasn't really anything that stuck with you. We slightly referred Tajwa Woden to it. I nearly gave my vote to Fletcher last round, though. This week, you've got Chad Wingard kicking a bouncer from a tight angle while being restrained by Ben Miller. You got Sam Powell Pepper, the first goal of the game. He fought out of a Nathan Murphy tackle, gave Darcy Moore the don't argue, and kicked from the right side with his right foot. And you've got Toby Green blowing past Will Powell, fielding a bouncing Aaron Cadman kick, fitting past Mac Andrew and scoring. Uh, Your winner is Isaac Rankin. Yeah, Rankin had a much better one. The only one that I would compare to his was Powell Pepper, so of these three, I'm going to take Powell Pepper, but as a lie, not just because it was an opening goal, but it was just like, oh, wow, get out of your seat, opening goal, but ranked it. How is he not even nominated? I don't know. I would have put him in over over Toby, probably. Did he, or maybe Wingard. I wouldn't put him in over either of those two. Anyway, he kicked out of a Judd McVee tackle to Rory Sloan, then received a handball back from Sloan along the boundary and kicked from the left boundary with his right foot at a really tight angle. That should have been your winner. It's not going to be. He is also a nominee for the main character of this round because in part of that, in part because he fueled a comeback, in part because he got hurt. Don't forget your round 18 winner, of course, was Gerard Watley, Waitley, etc., uh, your other nominees that did not win for round 19. Charlie Carnell once again kicks his bag against the Eagles. 10-3 this time. He is once again not your main character, even with that. Yeah, he is the first player since Tony Lockett in 1994 with a double nine against one team in the season. He did that against the Swans and then, of course, went over there the next season. Your other nominee is causing Pickett for his work in the midfield and the forward third. But we have... A winner because he was the player you left discussing after the most important game of the round. And the most important game of the year at this point. Jamie Elliott has done it again. Well, it's funny because in a way, this game might not end up meaning all that much. Ladder-wise, like, this really helps secure Collingwood as number one, but I think we're probably still on the path to be number one anyway. It's just, it takes Port in a pretty precarious position regarding their top two status, though. just... This was the game that was hyped up and it delivered on it, regardless of what was actually at stake. And honestly, you kind of knew it would end up being Elliot's opportunity, right? He's He's got his spot. I think it's clear as you game plan for Collingwood, there are two main things. Don't let him counterattack and don't let Elliot get marks late. And don't let that number five guy get into the corner at any time, particularly in the final five minutes. All right, that's going to finally do it. Next time, we'll be talking to you from cross country. Look forward to doing that. Look forward to sharing my many adventures and sordid tales. I don't think they'll be very sordid, but I'm, I'm going to be on adventures. Anyway. Yeah, your traveling tends to be pretty clean. Excited about round 20, starting with Cole Carr. You got Showdown in the mix. You got Q-Clash, which I'm less excited about. Again, yeah. with Q-Clash, it's like, give me reason to believe it's going to be really good. They gave it Balrat, among others. Huge game in Bow. This might be one of the most important games to ever be played there. Uh, Dogs hosting the Giants. We'll get into all of that in our round 20 preview on Tuesday. Don't forget, I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. Brian Harambe, who is sleeping face planted into my comforter right now, is on Instagram at CatNameBrian. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. We're collectively on Twitter and YouTube at AmericansFooty. And we're done here.